The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Church, remain standing with me this morning as we read Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father God, if we cannot see your face, we cannot behold your beauty. We cannot stand in awe of your majesty. We cannot sense your glory. We do not think rightly about your mercy and your love and your goodness and your grace. And what possible hope have we of walking in obedience, of rightly loving others, of having any, sen- any sense of unity here within this church? So Father, we gather together as your people this morning asking you to reveal yourself to us. We know that you are here. We know there is nowhere that we can go in all the universe to escape from your presence. And yet, Father, because of sin and selfishness, dullness of mind, we make it so difficult at times to know that you are there and to properly sense your presence. So my request this morning, Father, is that through the reading and studying of your word, we may know you, we may see you, we may be strengthened as a result of our encounter with you here this morning. Father, we ask you to do these things on account of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So by nature, man has a profound desire to be joined together to other people in meaningful ways. Community, family, troop, tribe, whatever name they call it by, man has an innate sense, an innate desire to feel connected and unified with other people. Now sadly, the vast majority of humanity, they're going to seek this through worldly means. They're going to give their lives to work or sport or gangs or political parties or online groups or country clubs. But at its core, at the root of man is this desire to be joined together, to be united with other humans. Now, This is not some new phenomenon. You can go all the way back to Genesis 11 and you read these words there, that people migrated from the east and settled in the land of Shinar saying, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. These men found a way to be united all right. They were joined together in their sin. They were bound together by their idolatrous desire to make a name for themselves. They were united in their rebellion and rejection of God as Lord and King. And so by the work of his spirit, God would disperse this people. He would confuse their language and scatter them all over the face of the earth. But church, you must know that this is the persistent nature of fallen man. We've seen it time after time after time. The world preaches unity along with her ugly twin sister, tolerance. We're told that more than anything else, we are to be united together. And so they build organizations They pass laws. They hold up unity as the supreme and ultimate and only unbreakable trait for which man must strive without giving any real concern for the basis or the aim of that unity, just as long as we can all agree that it is man and not God that is at the center of it. 
Now, sadly, this focus for unity, it has infiltrated the contemporary church. What you will find is that we're told often that we must be willing to sacrifice a desire for doctrinal accuracy, a call to personal holiness at the altar of tolerance and unity. But beloved, you must know that unity like this, it is utterly worthless. That is not a thing that can be held on to. In addition to this, it will leave men completely damned if this unity is not grounded in the truth of God's word and accomplished by the working of his spirit. Now I say all of that to you this morning as way of introduction to our study of the book of Ephesians. Now, if I were to sum up this book for you using just one sentence, it would be this. In his son and by his spirit, God is uniting people to each other and reconciling them to himself. That's the heart of the book of Ephesians. Far from the schemes and devices and efforts of men, much more than just a playbook or a blueprint for the church, more than anything else, the book of Ephesians is about God. The working of God by the Spirit of God through the Son of God on behalf of the people of God. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ, through the cross, thereby killing hostility. In what can only be called the highest and most magnificent declaration of all that God is and has done in the accomplishment of his purposes, we see that the Apostle Paul, he seems to pan his camera back to the ultimate of heights, it's almost as if we're viewing the entire redemptive story from a cosmic perspective. We're able to look backwards to before the very foundation of the world. We're able to look forward to that very last day and the full accomplishment of our redemption. We're given glimpses into the very purpose and plan and, and mind and heart of God. It's almost as if we are shown the infinite power of the Godhead and how it all works fully for our good towards our salvation. You can't help but feel like perhaps God has led us in somewhere that we should not be. It's like we've been caught up into heaven and we're there able to truly behold the majesty and the power and the might and the glory of God as he works on behalf of his people. Dear friends, if Romans is the most concise and the clearest expression of the gospel ever given to men, then surely what we find in Ephesians must be the most beautiful and majestic. These are not merely my thoughts. These are not merely my words. But for the 2,000-year history of the church, from church fathers like Ignatius and Tertullian, all the way forward to the good Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you find that men are overwhelmed. They are driven to divine worship as they encounter the living God and all that he is and all that he does on behalf of his people. They fall down to their knees under the weight of the apostles' words. What we find is the apostle Paul, he is strained to the very ends of himself. He stretches the human language to its very bounds as he tries to express to us what God has revealed by his spirit to him on our account. Dear friends, for those of you that have been reading through the, the book of Ephesians in preparation for this, you have some sense of this. For those of you that haven't yet, you will soon enough. And so my desire, it seems right to me that my plan for our time together this morning is before we dive and, and start picking apart the parts of the book of Ephesians, before we start dissecting, unless we get lost in the beauty of the words that Paul has expressed to us here, it seems good to me that we first take it as a whole. So my plan for our time this morning is that first, we're going to read the entire book of Ephesians together. Firstly, because that's how it was given. You understand that Paul did not disperse this message to us through tweets and texts, but through the hand of a faithful brother and co-laborer in Christ. He delivered it to the church as a whole. As they read it, standing all together in one place, in one time, in one sitting. Secondly, because in today's day and age, where true disciplined Bible study has been all but replaced with daily devotionals and a verse of the day, it is absolutely critical that we learn to deal with God's word in its proper and full context before we ever dare to try to determine what do we think these words mean. And lastly, in the words of commentator S.M. Baugh, the trees are beautiful in themselves, but the whole forest is where the vision of majesty dwells. So 
It will take us about 15 minutes to read through this book. And so I will not call you to stand at attention as is our normal pattern, but I will plead with you. I will urge you. Do not allow the enemy to drag your minds away in the moments to come. And the best weapon you have in this is to actually read along. So I ask you to open now your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab one of the pew Bibles. What you'll find is that on most of them, it's found on page 917. On some of the older Bibles that we have here in the room, it's on page 976. This is the perfect inerrant, all-sufficient, sufficient, authoritative word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what it is, what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and this not your own doing it is a gift of God not a result of work so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that has been given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose of he that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose hope excuse me, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend what, with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to our God. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather Speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality and greed, greed, greedy excuse me, to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members one of another." Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Chapter five. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who has covetous, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, and now you are the light of the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But then, excuse me, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what, is the will, what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as a bond servant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak so that you may know how I am and what I am doing. Tysicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. All God's people said, amen. Father God, may this work strike our heart and do its work. We know by your word and in the power of your spirit, Father, that you are transforming us, and we ask that you do that now. Give us wisdom as we work through this text together. Help us to see you as you are and ourselves as we are. And Jesus Christ is our only hope. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now my goal in covering and attempting to cover all six chapters of Ephesians this morning is is to be very concise with my words. So you'll notice me probably sticking a little bit more closely to my notes than usual, but that's because time is short. I have much to say, and I do. I want to be concise. I want to be very careful in the words that I say to you. And so as I told you in the very beginning, if I had to sum up Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in just one word, it would be that in his son and by his spirit, God is uniting people to each other, and he is reconciling them to himself. Now, friends, this is more critical than I can ever possibly uh, express to you that you would understand this, that you would understand that by his nature, man is both separated from and at enmity with God, that reconciliation is needed. Now, please don't assume the reality that, that this reality is embraced by everyone who calls himself Christian. In the recent decades, there's been this leftward march by so many evangelical churches with regards to their aim and focus. Now, this, this shift, it's almost... To, to the undiscerning ear, it's going to be imperceptible. You see, preachers, they're going to get up and they're going to continue to read from the same texts, the same passages of Scripture. They're going to continue to use Christian biblical words like love and forgiveness and mercy. But if you pay careful attention, you will find that they speak of these things as if they were owed to us by God. For far too many contemporary Christians, they work from the assumption that simply by way of being born into this world, we are positioned under a fountain of God's unending favor. Very rarely do you hear churches speak as if it was even possible for anyone sitting in their pews to be at enmity, to be an enemy, to be separated from God. Heaven today, heaven tomorrow, and abundant life today, they're preached as assumed and unalienable rights. Therefore, the job of the pastor, it becomes nothing more than helping people to understand the treasure trove of God's riches that are theirs by nature. So if you sit under these men for week after week, you can't come but help to believe that man's greatest problem, perhaps his only problem, is that he has forgotten the vastness of God's blessings that are upon them simply by being born into this world. And that because of that, they are not sufficiently happy. But church, this is not the message of the Bible. It certainly is not the message of Ephesians. What Paul makes clear to us here is that man, by his very nature, is at war with God. The pattern of our life is sin and disobedience. Far from being united together as a people under the blessing and and, and, and reign of God, we are joined together in our rebellion, in our hatred of him, and in our desire to make a name for ourselves and to reject his rule. Therefore, God owes us nothing but unending and eternal punishment. The only thing that is ours by natural birthright is the wrath of God. Beyond this, our sins have left us spiritually dead. Much like physically dead men, we're unable to do or even want to do anything to change our position. If left in our natural state, we will continue on in rebellion. We will close our eyes in this life and open them in the next in hell. If there's going to be some kind of reconciliation, if there's going to be some kind of redemption, if we're going to claim any of the blessings that we find in Scripture for ourselves, then we are wholly dependent upon God to do the work. And this reconciliation, this restoration, it cannot be assumed or demanded. And so, if I were to attempt to sum up the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians in just one sentence, it would be this. That Christians, like the rest of mankind, were once dead in our sin, completely deserving of God's wrath, but as a free and unmerited gift, God has made us alive so that he might lavish his kindness upon us. I take you back to Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Do you hear that phrase there at the end of that passage? By grace. That is the great theme of the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, grace. It is the opposite of something that is automatic or owed. Grace is God's unmerited favor, not merely his positive attitude or his affinity towards men, the working of his power and his wisdom and his goodness and his might to the good of his people. Grace, by its very nature, cannot be demanded. It is not owed to anyone, and it cannot be earned. Otherwise, it would cease to be grace. Paul says that we, he, that we can do nothing, either to work or even to will, to receive this grace. That grace must be directed by God towards whomever he wishes in whatever way he sees fit. And so because of this, God is completely free to bestow his grace upon one man while completely withholding it from another. I wonder if it would be more clear if we were to look at all the ways that he says the word grace, all the ways that Paul uses the word grace in this letter. We turn first to the introduction. If you want to know what Paul's letters are about, you just want a, a snapshot of what Paul's going to be talking about in his letters, you can often just go to his introductions. And we see this right here in Ephesians 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then down in verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He goes on in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Moving to chapter 2 verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved verse 6 and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing it is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast in chapter 3, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Down in verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which he has given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And then Paul concludes his letter. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Does that show you a picture of God's grace? It's the grounds for everything. It's the grounds for our forgiveness of sin. It's the grounds for our adoption as sons of God. It's our grounds for the, the, the riches of God's kindness. It's the grounds for Paul's calling as an apostle. The whole of salvation, even the faith by which we reach out our hands and receive this gift, it is all the working of God. It is all of grace. If you read this book, you can't help. If you're to read this book, just come to it with open eyes, depending upon the Spirit of God, it, it can't help but read to you like a one-sided rescue mission. It's all of God. God pursuing, God chasing, God giving, God calling, God working in the lives of his people, all of grace. It's God's love expressed through his working in the lives of his people, however he chooses, in ways that we could not possibly do in and of ourselves, and doing things that we could not possibly deserve. Therefore, no one has a claim based on bloodline, based on nationality, not based on any group that they have joined themselves to. No one has a claim. No one has a right. No one has an ability to demand God's grace. It is a free gift of God given freely to any he sees fit on account of Christ to be received by faith. Now, if we're not careful, though, we can get disheartened. If we sit back and we begin to really think about the reality that, okay, God's grace is not guaranteed to anyone. And God is completely free to give that grace to one man while passing over another. We can fall into despair if we're not careful. We can begin to look at God as if he were somehow capricious or, or he was without purpose. But that's the second thing I want to draw your attention to. You recall that I told you that the book of Ephesians, it's like God has pulled back the curtain. He's revealing to us the heart and the mind and, and the purpose of all that he does. So look back again at chapter 1, specifically those first 14 verses in chapter 1. 
What we find here is that Paul is unfolding the way in which the Trinity is working to secure and guarantee our salvation. Now, we're not going to get to touch on this this morning, but I would ask you, next time you're reading through the book of Ephesians, notice the way that Paul talks about your salvation is complete. Already seated in the heavenly places. But he's talking here about the work of the Trinity, the way the Trinity is working through grace to bring us to this place of salvation. But I want you to notice how many times within those first 14 verses you find either the words will or purpose or counsel or plan. The very first verse we're told that Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In verse five, in love God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Verse 9, God lavished the riches of his grace upon us by making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Then verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I would ask you to linger on that last verse for a little bit. Don't be distracted by the word predestined and whatever you think that it does or does not mean. Rather, feel the weight of that very last line. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Perhaps the most absolute and undeniable statement of God's sovereignty. God is working. God is doing. God is causing and seeing to it that all things happen in accordance with his will. Not just the dispensation, administration of his grace, all things things according to the counts. He's not working in all things. He is working. He is working. He is doing. He is guaranteeing. He is seeing to it that all things happen in accordance with his will. And dear friends, the purposes, the plans of God, these are not willy-nilly. God is not flying by the seat seat of his pants. He's not making things up as he goes, nor is he consulting with men it is not the will of men it is not the counsel of men it is not the plans of men it is all in accordance with God's will and dear friends you must know that God's will is wise and good and perfect and pure I can't afford to stay here as long as I would like we will spend months perhaps hunkering down on this reality but even now you must hear this and know that the grace of God by which you have been saved and sealed the grounds of assurance that you will endure to eternal life, the hope of your eternal inheritance, it is all bound up in the sovereign willing and planning and working of God. This is not academic. This is eternal life. This is the grounds for our worship. This is our hope in Christ Jesus. This is the driver of our prayers. This is the force behind our evangelism. This is the thing that leads to life. The sovereignty of God in the willing and planning and working of all things. Now, I'll draw you back to that word purpose again that we find in verse 5 and verse 9. In Greek, the word is eudikia. It means good pleasure. And so if someone were to come up to you and ask you, tell me then, how does God decide to save who he saves? You would not be wrong or in any way snarky to say because it pleased him to do so. But we don't have to stop there. Because he he gives us an even greater answer than that. Something more deeper, more fundamental, more direct than that. With regards to why God does all that he does. Go back to that very same portion in chapter 1. I want you to take note of the word praise there. Three times we find it. Verse 5. We are predestined by God to adoption through Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 11, we have been predestined by God to obtain an inheritance so that through Christ we might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, as those who have heard and believed the gospel, God has sealed us with his Holy Spirit who is a down payment of that inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Church, if you have heard nothing else come out of this pulpit in the three plus years that I've been your pastor, oh, how I pray that it is this. The most precious thing to God in all the universe is his own glory. The driving force behind everything that he does, literally everything that he does. His purpose in creation, in sustaining the world and all that is. 
His purpose in passing over some men and choosing others to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. The purpose in all that God does is to display his glory that he might be rightly praised. That's the purpose. And that would seem to be the reason why faith is his chosen instrument by which men would be saved. You might be tempted to ask yourself at times, why is it that faith is what's required of us? Why has God not promised us his blessings? Why has God not promised us salvation in response to obedience or worship or love? Why is faith the thing? It's because of the empty-handed receiving nature of faith. Faith is wholly dependent upon another. Faith brings nothing to the table. Faith directs our attention towards the object. Faith relies on nothing in us and everything in God. Faith proves out the words of Jonathan Edwards that all man contributes to his salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And so, because we are all found as children of wrath, spiritually dead, enemies of God, and because it is up to God to bestow or not bestow his saving grace upon whomever he chooses, now we begin to see the grounds for true unity. Do you understand this? Any dividing wall of race or nationality or, or external religion, it's immediately demolished. Literally everyone is on the outside standing, on the outside looking in. Literally everyone is an outcast. Literally everyone begins as an enemy of God. And unless God intervenes, we will remain there. And now what we find is he chooses and predestines and calls men to himself. Those who are now standing on the inside by the gracious working of God according to his good purpose, his plan, his will, we all stand here knowing we've done nothing to earn our way in. We received gifts that we could have never gained, that we had no right to demand. No one has any room to boast. And at the same time, we are all standing under the riches of God's grace. Do you see where that unity now comes? That within the kingdom of God, there's no one there by birthright. But to those that believe that it is their birthright, this is the worst news of all time. For those that would think that they would earn their way into the kingdom, that they somehow served their way into the kingdom, this is horrendous news. But for those who know that we were on the outside and had no way of making a place in the kingdom of God, there's nothing more glorious than this. There's nothing that drives worship more than this. And there's nothing that unites men more than this. So I'll go back to Ephesians 2.17, that Christ came to preach peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. You who were near, you needed peace. You who were far off, you needed peace. And without peace with God, you cannot have peace with, the, with each other. Now as we move to chapter 3, what we see is that the Apostle Paul tells us that this was a mystery hidden from all the ages. We read in Ephesians 3.6, this mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, whenever the, the Bible uses the word mystery, this isn't a riddle. This isn't something that only really smart people can attain to. This isn't something that super, super spiritual people, they can dig, they can crack the code, they can decipher it. That's not at all what it is. A mystery is a thing that cannot be known unless the God of the universe chooses to reveal it. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. By the grace of God, I being the very least of the saints, deserving no place in his kingdom myself, he has chosen to reveal this gospel to me that I may take it to you. Again, I tell you, dear friends, this is a one-sided rescue mission. He has revealed it to Paul, and Paul will preach it to us. And I look at my watch. I so badly have more that I'd like to say about these first three chapters, but I've got to remind myself, this is a flyby. We're looking at this thing from 10,000 feet. We'll have plenty of opportunity to dig in and dissect and really see how all these pieces come together. But I've attempted to sum up the entire book of Ephesians for you in just one sentence. I attempted to sum up the first three chapters in just one sentence. I wonder if it wouldn't be helpful to you if I just went through and defined every paragraph with one quick sentence. I've seen men do this so eloquently. I'm not the eloquent guy but I've seen men do this so poetically and so eloquently and it really did help to encapsulate for me the message of what Paul was giving. We see the way his argument comes together when, when just quickly we run through it. So that's, this is my attempt at that. Chapter one, Paul, an apostle by the will of God to the believers in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. 
May God's grace and peace be given to you. Praise God for he has chosen us to be redeemed and forgiven through Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Both you and we have been predestined in Christ and sealed with the Holy Spirit until we acquire possession of our eternal inheritance to the praise of his glory. I thank God for you and ask him, to, ask him in prayer to shine his light into your hearts to give you a knowledge of Christ and of the way in which he works powerfully for your good. Chapter two. We were all spiritually dead in our sin, slaves to the evil desires of our mind and deserving of wrath. Yet God made us alive with Christ so that he might bless us in the ages to come. This salvation and the faith with which, with which we receive it are all owing to the free and unmerited grace of God. Therefore, remember that you Gentiles were completely alienated from God. But now, in Christ, you are brought near to him. For he has done everything necessary to break down every barrier so that both Jews and Gentiles may be one new man, one body, one household, and that God might dwell with us both in his spirit. Chapter 3, I, Paul, and a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles, having been shown that which is previously hidden, namely that Gentiles are fellow heirs of the promises of Christ. This gospel is entrusted to me, even though I'm the least of the saints, so that I might preach this glorious news and that by it, the wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was the plan of God. Therefore, do not be discouraged by my suffering. In light of it all, I, in light of all that I've just said, I pray to God and ask him to strengthen you by his power so that Christ might dwell in your heart through faith and that you may comprehend his inexhaustible love and that you may be filled with the fullness of God. To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now it's at this point that Paul would seem to make a shift in his thinking, or at very least, a shift in his sphere of focus. Now in this way, this letter, it, it seems to divide very well into two equal halves. Some has classified it as a division of doctrine followed by duty. It's as, it's as if Paul were laying down the foundation, the, the foundational teaching with regards to our salvation in chapters one through three. And then at chapter four, he shifts and begins to talk about how we're to live this salvation off. It, it's, it's like a, a theological treatise followed by practical commandments. And while I do not completely disagree with this analysis, I'm afraid this sort of classification, it might give us the false impression that our ability to walk in holiness our ability to love each other and to maintain the unity that Christ has entrusted us could ever be absent from or rise above our theology. Now we certainly do see a shift here in chapter four. The focus that Paul moves towards is maintaining the unity, walking in light, walking in love in accordance with all that he has just said. But for Paul, the life of personal holiness and corporate unity. It's not merely informed by right thoughts about God. It flows from and is dependent upon it. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? That he sees the former is dependent upon the latter. That's why he prays fervently for believers to know the power of God. Did you notice that? There were two prayers in the first half of Ephesians. We saw one at the end of chapter one, one at the end of chapter three. And in both of those prayers, what is Paul asking for? The thing that's most desperate on his heart, that he knows his people need more than anything else. His hope is that they may come to, a, deep, to deep, a deeper knowledge of the love and power of God. Enlightenment is the word that Paul uses. Again, this isn't some mystical thing. This isn't something that super spiritual people sit around and try to achieve. This isn't something you empty your brain to come to. It's the working of God. It's the illumination of God. God. It's the light of God shining into the hearts of his people. Eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe. That we may grow in our knowledge of him, in our understanding, to see him, to know him, to cherish him, to recognize the power that he's working with in and through us. Your children, you must know that more than anything else in the entire world, the direction and the pattern of your life is dictated by the thoughts that you have about God. Without his help, our thoughts will always be faulty and our walk will always be shaky. And so while there is truly a turn here in chapter four, there's a turn to thinking about how we cling to the unity that God has given us in Christ and walk in love. We must never allow ourselves to think that we could ever divorce that call from personal holiness, from our desperate need to think rightly about God and all that he does. In this way, I think that the words of A.W. Tozer might help to bridge the gap between these two halves. This is going to be a familiar quote to many of you. He said that for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. The most portentous fact about a man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in the deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. 
always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. So many men have shipwrecked their lives by trying to walk in holiness, walk in love, walk in obedience, build unity without making sure that they think right thoughts about God. So if I were to attempt to try and sum up chapters four through six of Ephesians with just one sentence, it would be this. Keeping our hearts and minds fixed firmly upon God and all that he has done for us in salvation, we must live in a manner that reflects his love and does nothing to jeopardize the unity that he has created in Christ. I'll give it to you later, Leanne. Or you can turn to Ephesians 1, verse 4, excuse me, verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which he has been, you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I think it might be helpful if we went through and I gave you one sentence for each paragraph in this second half. Chapter 4. In light of all that God has done in and for you, I urge you to eagerly maintain the unity which God has granted to us and to ensure that you live lives reflecting your calling in Christ. In order to aid in this unity, Christ has given gifts to each of us. You must use these gifts to build up the whole body so that we might be mature and stable. You can no longer walk like the world, but rather put off your old sinful self and put on your new self, which is made in the likeness of God. Put away lies and theft and anger, guarding your mouth from all kinds of corrupt speech, and instead be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Chapter 5. Imitate God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for our salvation. Again, I say you must guard your mouths from all foolishness and filthiness, and you must flee from sexual immorality, because you can be sure of this, that people who live like this will have no place in the kingdom of God. In fact, you should not be united to such people who do these things, because you are no longer darkness like them, but you have been reborn as children of light. Therefore, be careful to live as wise men, taking advantage of every opportunity you have and building each other up with joyful songs of worship and praise. Wives must submit to their husbands as they do to the Lord, and husbands must sacrificially love their wives as Christ loved the church. For in this you are painting a picture to the world of Christ and his bride. Chapter 6, children must obey their parents just as God commanded, and fathers must not provoke their children to anger as they raise them to know and obey the Lord. Bond servants must obey their bastards even when no one is looking, for God sees and he rewards those who do good. Masters must not abuse their servants because they too will answer to God and he shows no partiality. All of you, be strong in the Lord and make use of the spiritual armor which God has given you because our battle is against the forces of darkness. Stay alert and pray at all times for God's help. Specifically, pray that God will give me the strength to boldly proclaim the gospel for which I have been arrested. Peace to you and love with, love with faith from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to all who love the Lord with imperishable love. Now, just as we did with the first half, I think we can pull out some, some key statements that we see whenever we read through this second half of Ephesians. The first thing I would draw your attention to is the word love. Look at all the ways that it's used. Ephesians 4, verse 2, bear with one another in love. Ephesians 4, 15 to 16, rather speak the truth in love. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint when it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Chapter 5, verse 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And then, of course, in the conclusion, peace be to the brothers and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be to all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Do you notice the way that our love is driven by and defined by the love of Christ? Our love is meant to be grounded in him. We're meant to look. In chapter 5, the very beginning of chapter 5, we're told that we're to love like Christ. In what way did Christ love? We're not left to guess. He says specifically, we're to love like Christ in the way that he gave himself for us. That's a self-sacrificing love. That's a costly love. That's a love bestowed upon men that couldn't possibly deserve it. Men who are living in sin and filth and rebellion against him. Men who would curse his very name. Men who would put him to death. 
That's the kind of love that we're called to have. The kind of love that breaks down all manner of barriers. A pursuing love. A love which goes after those who are both unlovely and unwilling to return the love that we bestowed upon them. That's the love that we see in Christ. That's the love of God through Christ in our lives. Not only in sending his son that we might be spared, that we might be set free from our sin by his blood, not only sparing us from his wrath, but adopting us as children. Now, if you're a sane and reasonable person, you read this, you recognize that we're called to love like Christ, and you say, but I can't. What you're calling me to do is an impossible thing. Dear brothers, this is why I tell you that to hold on to the commands of the second half in separation from the first will leave you miserable and broke. Now he calls us here to walk as beloved children. Let me read the end of verse four, chapter 4 and the beginning of verse 5. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You might circle that term as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loves us and gave himself up for us. The way in which we love is because we have become beloved children. This draws my mind right back to chapter two when we're told about the filth of our lives, the rebellion, the pattern of our lives, that we are children of wrath, that in our nature we don't only live in rebellion to God, we're not only at war with God, we're prepared for nothing but an eternity of his hatred, his punishment. But then what do we see that he says there? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with, with which he has loved us. Dear friends, if that doesn't put a pep in your step, nothing will. It's not a little love. It's not a begrudging love. It's not a tiny love. It's the great love with which he has loved us. That's what it means to be beloved children. That there's a unique love, not just the way that God loves all the earth, not just the way he provides for all mankind, but a unique, a special, a great love that he bestows upon those that would become his beloved children. And that's what drives our love. It's not that we try to aspire to this. This isn't something that we're striving for on our own. This isn't something that we're looking for those who deserve. It's as those who have been set free those who have been forgiven, we look to Jesus Christ. We meditate on Jesus Christ. We grow in the knowledge and understanding and trust and power of Jesus Christ. And then his, his love flows through us onto others. And it's almost that we can't help it because we're beloved children. Do you see the difference between that and the futility of man-made unity? Of man-centered love? It seems as though what Paul is saying is the way you can best love others is by being loved by God. Standing under the fountain of his blessing. Growing in your understanding of the ways in which he loves you. And that in that way, the love of God runs through us and it spills on to every encounter that we have. But I want to draw your attention to something else before we run out of time. I told you in the beginning that this letter is about the fact that in his son and by his spirit, God is uniting people to each other and he is reconciling them to himself. But you notice what I did not say. No, my words are not inerrant. My words are not scripture. But I was intentional. Because you notice what I did not say was that in Christ and by his spirit, God is uniting all people together. and reconciling them to himself. While in Christ Jesus, God has broken down every single ethnic and national, and again I say external religious barrier that would stand between men and himself. And while we're called to reflect his love in every single relationship, there must be certain boundaries between children of light and children of darkness we are not called to be united to all people indiscriminately i go back to ephesians 5 beginning in verse 3 but sexually immoral excuse me but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance of the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. 
For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Church, Christian people, children of the light, sons of God must have a discerning spirit. True unity can only be found amongst those who have been sanctified and forgiven and called together by the blood of Jesus Christ. Those who come in repentant faith to him. That's why I told you in the, in the beginning. I told you in my introduction. We must reject all calls for unity for unity's sake. There can be no unity between light and darkness. And as those who are now been called out of the darkness and into the light of the world, our job is to expose the light. To call other men excuse me, to expose the darkness, to call other men out of the darkness and into the light, but we're to take no part in that darkness ourselves. Therefore, if you long for true unity, you long to walk rightly in the way that God has commanded, then you cling tightly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You recognize that as children of the light, we have no place in the light, and we recognize that the way ourselves grow, the way that we ourselves grow as children of the light is growing in the knowledge and understanding and wisdom of God. Do you see the way that it all comes together? This isn't just a thing that we're talking about with the dark world out there. It's even when dark infiltrates the church. There's a number of metaphors that, God use, that, that Paul uses with regards to the church here. Something of note, I don't have time to touch on it this morning, something of note, that every time Paul talks about the church in the letter of Ephesians, he's talking about the Catholic, the universal church. He's not talking about local congregations, although he has a heart for them. We know this. In other, God, in other letters, he does talk about this. But here he's talking about, again, I tell you, this is the cosmic view of the redemptive story. Talking about the universal church. But he talks about, about the church. He talks about it as a body. He talks about it as a household. He talks about it as a building, a temple where God's spirit dwells. But I can't help but think about this. If I think about the church as a building, I can't help but think that there are some buildings that you walk in and there are cracks running all the way down the wall. And nobody ever thought to wonder, is our foundation busted? As a matter of fact, everyone's afraid to ask because they're afraid they're going to lose whatever false sense of unity they have. And so what do they do? In the name of unity, they plaster over the cracks. They ignore unconfessed sin. They turn a blind eye to faulty theology. They could care less whether the things we say about God are actually true, just as long as we all confess that we love each other. Again, they hold unity up as the thing to be accomplished above all else, and all they're doing is they're covering over the cracks. And eventually the whole thing comes tumbling down. Therefore, you must understand that as children of light, as those who seek unity, as those who want to walk in true love, we must cling to the truth of who God is. We must see him, and think about him and speak rightly about who he is. And then we must bask in that glory. We must worship him for who he is, trusting that he will transform us into the beloved children that he's called us to be. As we worship, as we study, as we pray, as we come together as a united people that have no place in this kingdom uh, based on our own natural senses, based on anything that we've earned. That's where un unity comes. And then when we see the cracks coming up in the wall, we address them. We say, that's not light. It must be exposed and rejected. When we hear people saying things that aren't true about God, we say, I'm sorry, brother. That's not what he said. And if the unity then comes tumbling down, it was never his unity in the first place. We must be a people who strives for sound theology, which drives us to live sacrificial lives of godly love. One last thing I want to draw your attention to and we will end here for the day. You'll notice that in chapter 4 in verse 7, I believe it is, he says that Christ has given to each one a measure of gifts, a measure of grace. So Paul doesn't only talk about the church. He, he does talk about the individual, that each one of us have been imparted with God's grace. But then as you move down a little bit, you get to verse 11. He begins to talk about all the gifts that God has given to the church for her building up, that she may grow in maturity, that she might not be tossed to and fro by the winds of every doctrine and human cunning. What he's saying is that each one of you have been gifted individually, but you desperately need to bring those gifts to the body. You desperately need to be united together as one people under the headship of Jesus Christ, and that by those gifts, he says here that he's given them apostles and prophets. He's talking about the word of God. 
and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That he's given you the word of God. He's given you men to teach and to wrestle and to struggle and to correct and to show you the word of God. That you may grow into maturity. That you may become stable. But then there's a word right there in the middle. Chapter 15, it says, rather, speaking the truth in love. Now, for the vast majority of my life, I believe that all that meant was, whenever I go to say a hard truth to somebody, make sure that it's seasoned with love and compassion and mercy. And that's certainly a godly thing. We're not to speak the truth as jerks. We're to speak the truth in love. But in its context, you see this. He says, Rather, rather than being blown around by the wind of doctrine, rather than going with your emotions, rather than being swayed by false teachers, rather speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint when each is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you understand what speaking the truth in love here? It's speaking the truth about God. I want you to grow in spiritual maturity. I want you to grow in your thinking about God. I want you to grow in understanding his power. I want you to grow in grasping his immeasurable love. Because I know that when you grow in this way, when you grow personally in maturity, you then help the body to grow in maturity, and we then grow in love. Do you understand this? That's where unity is found. Now, you may think this is easy for me to say because I'm the preacher because I'm the guy charged with doing all this teaching. But dear friends, I'm telling you, it screams to you out of this book over and over and over again. What Paul says is, you want to walk in love, you want unity, you want to be mature, you don't want to be swept away. Think right thoughts about God. And it's only in his word and by the working of his spirit that you will ever come to that place. Now dear friends, please don't ever twist this because there's a ditch on the other side. You understand that theology for, the, for theology's sake is in of itself worthless. We come to this theology, we come to this knowledge of God, not just to store it in the library of our brain, but to see him and to know him and with the goal of being changed. And coming to the end of ourselves and saying, I can't love the way you've called me to love. We can't walk the way you've called us to walk. I can't be a child of the light the way you called me to be. He says, good, come and look at my face for a while. That that must be the goal. That that's the difference between haughty theological jerks and true children of light. I'm stoked, guys. It's going to be good. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the full counsel of your word. We thank you that we need not shy away from one single piece of it. We thank you that by the working of your spirit, we can know and see and come to some understanding of who you are and what you've done. We thank you, Father, that um, despite our rebellion, our disobedience, and our, our love for the darkness, that you came and rescued us. Father, my prayer for these people is that they would see you more clearly. They would know you. They would be beloved children, and they would walk in the love of Christ. Father, we ask this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.